0: prayer contains the very words of Jesus as he kneels and prays before his heavenly father so this morning I direct your attention beginning with verse 20 and reading through verse 26 our Lord Jesus prays I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may be, all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Oh, gracious Lord. Thank you for the grace you have given us already this morning. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for praying for us. And thank you for continuing to make intercession on our behalf. Lord, I know that your word will be accomplished. And that the prayers of our Lord Jesus are effective, Father. So I ask you, Lord, to work within us that these prayers might be, be completed within Trinity. And with all those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus as Savior. Help us to demonstrate to the world that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. and That he has loved us with the same love with which you shared with him before the foundations of the world. Grant this, Father, I pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen. I'd like to begin by sharing with you three uh, instances from history that have a common denominator. And as I go through them, see if you can figure them out before I, uh, as is, uh, could be said, open the present and share what they are. 1984 was the year that Michael Jordan came out in the NBA draft. Now, many may debate if he is the greatest player ever to play, but it's hard to deny that he is an incredibly gifted basketball player. Many are surprised to find out that he was not drafted first or even second in that year's draft. Michael Jordan was the third overall draft pick that year. The Houston Rockets selected Hakeem Olajuwon, not a bad draft pick by any means. But it's the Portland Trailblazers that have often kicked themselves for taking Sam Bowie over Michael Jordan. Instance number two. I have no doubt that the vast majority of the world has heard of Apple Computer. Apple Computer began in a garage in 1976. Now, most people have heard of the two Steves, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, who founded Apple. But what is often forgotten is that there was a third founder of Apple, a man by the name of Ronald Wayne. Ronald Wayne wrote the first partnership agreement, wrote the manual for the first Apple, and even drew the first Apple logo. Now the reason you've never heard of Wayne is this, less than two weeks after Apple was founded and after receiving 10% stake in the company, he sold his stock in Apple for $800. Today that stock would have been worth $55 billion. That's instance number two. Incident number three involves a man by the name of Mike Smith. He was an executive in charge of evaluating talent for Decca Records. Mike Smith traveled to Liverpool, England when he listened to an up-and-coming band, and he was impressed. The band had talent, and so he brought them to DECA's London office for an audition on New Year's Day in 1962. The band played 15 songs, went home, and waited for an answer. And when they finally heard the answer, Decca's reply was, Guitar groups are on the way out and the Beatles have no future in show business. Here's what I think are three common denominators in each of those instances. Missed opportunity. An opportunity was before each group and it was an opportunity of which each person or each group did not avail themselves of. I really believe today that the church has before it an incredible incredible opportunity. The church has an opportunity to demonstrate unity and true community to a world that is divided. Now it's no secret to say that the divides of our world are indeed deep and wide. They're all around us. Our nation is divided politically. Red states, blue states, Democrat, Republican. We are a nation divided ethnically. Racism continues to tear the fabric of our nation apart and we are divided economically. Nevertheless, there is a strong desire within each individual, a desire for unity. We may not see that at times, but it is there. I believe this desire for unity, this desire for belonging, this desire for community is expressed in the words of the song of an old sitcom, if you will bear me a moment to reminisce, because I find these words are true. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. Every human has a deep desire to be a part of community. We have that because we are made in the image of God. God who is one, yet three. Unified, yet community. And today, the church has an opportunity that we might demonstrate what true unity is and what true community is about Jesus prayed for this very thing on the night before he was arrested. As he brings this prayer to a conclusion, he makes three requests. Verses 21 contains two of them. Notice in verse 21, he prays first that his followers would be one. Jesus then prays that his followers would be in us. And I believe that's a reference to the Trinity. Lord, let my followers be one. Let them be in us. And then in verse 24 is the third request. Notice he prays there, I desire that they also whom you have given me, that would be the church, may be with me where I am to see my glory. Three main requests that these six verses are built around. One, let them be one. Two, let them be in us. Three, let them be with me that they might see my glory. Now we must understand that being one is much more than being united in purpose. It's not less than that, but it goes much deeper than just saying, well we have one purpose and that is to share the gospel. While that may be true, we must understand that our oneness goes far deeper than a cause. For example, a football team needs to be unified. Offensive lineman needs to block for the quarterback. But the reality is it doesn't matter if that offensive lineman likes that quarterback or not. He may dislike that quarterback intensely, but he may still do his job. It's very easy to fall into such a a pragmatic state of mind. Well, you know, we may not get along, but we've got one purpose, so we will, will seek that. That is not what the church is to be. Being one is about the quality of relationships not just being united around a purpose oneness means that we are bound by love that's what Jesus prays when he says that they may also be in us now I'm, I must be upfront with you when I read that prayer request that they also may be in us There's much about that. I don't understand or comprehend what that means. I do believe it points to the Trinity. I believe the us is a reference to Father, Son, and Spirit. And in the context of praying that the church would be one, I believe it's speaking of the oneness and the quality of relationships shared by the Trinity in all of eternity. Think for a moment about the oneness of the Trinity. Now, once again, when we talk about the Trinity, we recognize that we are treading on mysterious and holy ground. Three, yet one, Father, Son, and Spirit dwelling in eternal unity, in eternal relationships. But think about what their relationship for all eternity has been characterized by. Love and joy. The Trinity is characterized by never-ending love, never-ending joy. And because it is eternal, because it is stretched not only into the past but always in the future, that means that the Trinity is marked by always growing and expanding love, always growing and expanding joy. And church, Jesus is praying that you and I would be a part of that love and a part of that joy, not only dwelling in it individually but sharing and experiencing that with one another. And that love and joy is a precursor, a a trailer, a preview of coming attractions. Because notice in verse 24 what he prays. Lord, let them be with me that they might see my glory. Now in many ways, verse 24 references back to the statement Jesus prayed in verse 5. Look at that. He says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. So now, Father, I want them to be with me where I am so they may see my glory. This is looking forward, I believe, to a glorious day when we will be with him forever. The glory that we experience of the Lord now is simply like an appetizer before the main course. Jesus revealed this to the disciples the Mount of Transfiguration, for example, where they saw his magnificent presence and it was so wonderful. Peter says, let us build three tabernacles here. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote more about this. On the screen, you'll see 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, where it's written, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know... That when He appears, we shall be like Him. Why? Because we shall see Him as He is. The glorious promise of being with the Lord. John 14, 1-6, where Jesus says, In my house are many mansions, many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you. But I'm telling you this so that you will be with me. You see, the love and the joy that we are to share with one another as we are one in the Trinity simply points us to the greater revelation of that glory that will be ours on the day the Lord Jesus returns. But understand that this this precursor of joy and peace is not just about the future. It's to be taking place now so that we will be a witness to the world there is far more at stake in the church's unity and oneness than we realize and there's far more at stake if we fail to strive to be one notice why jesus praised these things see there's a reason there's a desired outcome Verse 21 and verse 23 point to the reason Jesus prays that we will be one and be in him. I draw your attention to two words. So that. When you read those words, it's pointing to purpose. Do this so that this will happen. So what is the desired outcome of us being one And of us dwelling in the joy and the love of the Trinity. Verse 21. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Same thing is found in verse 23, but it's expanded. He says, I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me. Now here's where it's expanded and loved them even as you loved me. In other words, as the church lives the oneness and the unity of which Jesus prayed here, the world will see and come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That means that our unity will be observable. It means the world, as it looks at the church, even as it hates and persecutes the church, will see a quality of relationship and community of which it desires and recognizes as being otherworldly. Our unity is either a stepping stone or a stumbling block to an unbelieving world. Our oneness either gives credibility to the gospel or it undermines it. Almost... 30 or 40 years ago it is now. The two countries of England and France decided they would engage in a joint operation to build a tunnel underneath the English Channel. The Channel, as it is called. It was meant to be a a demonstration of the unity between two nations. As walls were coming down, the Channel was meant to represent what happens when two countries work together for the mutual and common good. And it truly is an engineering feat. The channel is 31 miles long and 23 miles of it is underneath the English Channel. It appears like they succeeded, didn't it? Not really. The completion of the task only gave a superficial witness to their unity. You see, when the channel was built, there were two two groups working. There was the financial group and the engineering group. And each group had two sides A French side and an English side. No one was allowed to take charge. And management was reduced to simply management of conflict. It said there was a lot of of yelling. They weren't geared to solve problems. The English yelled at the French in English. The French yelled at the English in French. Problems were lack of shared standards. Two countries had a different word for everything. The French had their own accounting system, so did the English. The French ran on 380 volts. The British ran on 420. Instruction manuals were printed bilingually. And there were even two different standards used to measure sea level. The desired unity couldn't agree on the same standard. That's not a problem for the church. You see, we come to the Scripture and say, what is our standard for unity? What is our measurement? It's it's the Trinity, That's how our unity is measured. So our unity is to be more than just this superficial, we all get along. The oneness of the body of Christ is meant to be evidence of the reality of Jesus. And it's also meant to be a demonstration of the love of Jesus. This is emphasized in verses 23 and 24. Notice as he expands this idea that, The credibility of the gospel is at stake in the oneness and the unity of the world, but also is our testimony of the love of God. He says, Father, verse 24, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, this idea is that God shared with Jesus the glory he had before the foundation of the world because he loved Jesus. But he is also saying that he is sharing that glory with us. When the church is one and is united and is a community that is striving to be what God intends, we are like a billboard proclaiming the love of God. It's very exciting to really see that on the horizon... The pandemic will come to an end. That's on the horizon. When it will be exactly, I don't know, but I believe it's on the horizon. But I've shared with you before that the COVID pandemic of 2020 is not the first pandemic to impact the world. By far. In AD 165, a plague struck the world and killed one-third to one-fourth of the population. 100 years later, to around 265, another plague struck the world. And historians and epidemiologists estimate that 5,000 people died a day. Now, the reason I mention these two pandemics particularly is this. In each of those times, Christianity grew exponentially. Sociologists and religious historians have asked why. Why was it that in the midst of two pandemics in the early church, the church grew? And the conclusion reached was this. Because in the midst of the pandemic, when people were scattering and fleeing, the church demonstrated love for those who were dying and those who were sick. I'd remind you there were no hospitals then. Hospitals came along centuries after this. Any care was given within a person's home, and that care was given usually by friends or family members. And if you were well off enough, maybe a physician like Dr. Luke, but for the most part, you were on your own. Tertullian was a church historian of this time period. Writing about what happened in the first pandemic, he wrote, and you'll see his words up on the screen. It is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Only look, they say. Look how they love one another. That's what made the difference. That was one of the reasons the church began to grow. It was a community of love that in the midst of disaster and tragedy continued to love. At stake in the church is the belief that Jesus is the Son of God and the authenticity of His love. So how do we get there? How can we love like we should? And how can we be one as Jesus prayed? The very fact that Jesus asked this on our behalf tells me that the origin of this is supernatural. To love in such a way is beyond our human ability. We are tainted by sin and will bend towards selfishness and hold our opinions and our, our desires often and over of everything else. However, we must recognize that Jesus would not have prayed this if it were not possible. And because it is a supernatural work, you and I must, must be abiding in Christ in order to grow in Christ. Draw your attention to the text at the end of verse 21. Where he says, they may be in us. Notice in verse 22, he says, the glory that you have given me, I've given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. Now that language of being in that is used at the end of verse 21 should be familiar. There should be a a, a little bit of a, a bell going off in the back of your mind because Jesus has used such language previously in the Gospel of John. In John fifteen he talked about the vine and the branches and being in him. The branches must be in the vine and that apart from him we can do nothing. So it tells us that to be in Him, it's this idea playing upon the, the image, the metaphor of being a branch, we must be connected to Christ to grow in Christ. Furthermore, notice He has supplied what we need. Verse 22 is an amazing statement. "The glory that you, that is, God the Father, has given Jesus, Jesus is given to us." Now this begs the question, What is this glory? What is the glory that Jesus shared with the Father, that the Father shared with him, that he has shared with us? Well, let's, let's start with this process of elimination. What is this glory? Well, we know what it can't be. The glory that he's referring to here cannot be omnipotence or any of us all-powerful. No, can't say he shared that with us. Any of us all-knowing? Anyone claim to be omniscient? No. Omnipresent? No? Okay. So we know it's not those aspects of God's glory that Jesus has that He's been given to us. Which leads me to what I believe it is. It must be the character of God. Remember that God's glory is not just the physical manifestation of His power. Exodus emphasizes the glory of God is what? His mercy, His compassion, His grace, His justice, His truth. I believe that's how we share. So basically, Jesus is saying, the glory you've given me in that I am manifesting your glory. John 1.14 says, we have beheld the Son full of what? Grace and truth. By the Holy Spirit, He has given us grace and truth that we have the glory, the grace and truth, the character of God dwelling within us by the Holy Spirit that will push us toward being unified and one. We must grow in those graces. We are dependent upon God to be one and to show His love. And to do that, we must be connected to the source. That means we must be committed to corporate worship. We must be committed to growing in Christ. Every believer must be doing these things. That's how we grow in Him. Look at verse 26. He says, I made known to them your name. Now remember, name is character. That reinforces my interpretation of verse 24, where he talks about sharing his glory. He says, I've made known to them your name. Isn't God's name part of his glory? I've made it it known to them. Now, look at this next incredible promise I will continue to make it known. I'm going to continue letting them know you. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit brings us further and further into the character of who Christ is. And now notice why. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. If we claim we are walking with God but we are not loving, we are fooling ourselves and lying. If we say that we love God but we are not seeking to grow in these graces... We are being much less than forthright and our claims to follow Jesus are meaningless. We need each other. We cannot be all that we can be in Christ without one another. Every pronoun in here, other than when Jesus refers to himself, is plural. Them. I've given it to them. Them. You know we will attain more of Christ living together and when I say that being a part of a community is what I mean in his book outliers Malcolm Gladwell tells the story of a young man by the name of Christopher Langan Christopher Langen had an IQ of 195 now let me give you a little perspective Einstein's IQ was 150 Langan Langan often would sit down before taking a foreign language test, skim the textbook for two to three minutes and then ace the test. He got a perfect score on his SAT even though he fell asleep while taking it. But he ended up working on a horse farm in rural Missouri. Now understand, nothing wrong with working on a horse farm. Hard work. But I think we would all agree that we would expect more from someone with an IQ of 195. What happened? Gladwell summed it up like this. He said Langan never had a community to help him capitalize on his gifts. He had to make his way alone and no one, not rock stars, not athletes, not software billionaires, not even geniuses ever make it alone that's why Satan strikes at the unity of the church that's why he strikes and works to cause division so the question is how can we counteract the strategies of Satan first it means we must commit that as we can we begin to gather in groups to build community gathering and worship is good But if you truly want to be connected, you need to be in a Sunday school class getting to know people. Learning what it is to open your life and to share life in Christ. Now that means practicing forgiveness. I am not naive. I've been in the ministry long enough to know people get their feelings hurt. That's why we must practice forgiveness. That's why we must work to assume the best. It means working to love one another. Working to do that. Writer and NPR commentator Heather King, I think, put it very well. She is a a believer. and She's also a recovering alcoholic. She reflected on her initial experience with the church. And she said, my first impulse was to think, and I quote, my God, I don't want to get sober with these nutcases. Just laugh at that. (laughs) She said, nothing shatters our egos like worshiping with people we did not handpick. The humiliation of discovering that we are thrown in with extremely unpromising people. People who are broken, misguided, wishy-washy. People who are us. But we don't come to church to be with people who are like us in the way we want them to be. We come because we have staked our souls on the fact that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And the church is the best place, the only place to be while we all struggle to figure out what that means. We come because we'd be hard pressed to say which is the bigger of the two scandals of God. That He loves us or that He loves everyone else. See, the amazing thing is to me that the answer to Jesus' prayer is found within us as the Holy Spirit works. Let's strive for these things. It's very easy to throw up our hands and say, well, we can never love as we ought. But you know what? That doesn't mean we ever should stop trying. Because we will do more together for Christ than we can separately. We have an opportunity To show true unity and community to a world that is starving for it. Church, let's resolve and strive for that. Bow with me in prayer if you will. Heavenly Father, I pray on behalf of my brothers and sisters in Christ whom I love deeply asking for your help. I think we each recognize that we fall short of this ideal. I preach recognizing and knowing that there are those who hear this message that have been hurt by other believers. And those wounds are deep. And I pray this morning that they will find healing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I ask you, Lord, to help us grow in the love and the joy that is found in in you, in the Trinity. Help us to grow in these things as we abide in Christ. Help us to grow in relationships with one another. Help us to learn to risk, to be vulnerable. And help us to learn how to extend forgiveness and grace to others. In the name of Jesus, I ask these things for His sake. Amen.
1: Let's stand church together as we sing of God's love for us and the love He gives us to share with you love of God. i